0: Honey, be, be yeah. be Honey, be, be mm-hmm.
1: Good evening, and welcome to the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm your host this evening, Julie Murphy. And tonight, we'll be interviewing San Francisco Bay Area poet, Gail Newman, here on KSQD 90.7 FM. Welcome back. This is Julie Murphy and I'm your host this evening on the Hive Poetry Collective, sharing poetry and inspiration from Santa Cruz and the world beyond. Tonight we have a special guest with us, Gail Newman. Welcome, Gail. Thank you, so nice to be here, Julie. It's great to be with you. Gail Newman is a child of Polish Holocaust survivors. Gail was born into a displaced persons camp in Landsberg, Germany her family immigrated to the United States and settled in Los Angeles. Gail has worked as an arts administrator, museum educator, and poet teacher. Her poems have appeared in Calyx, Ghosts of the Holocaust, Nimrod International Journal, Prairie Schooner, and elsewhere. Miss Pacha was awarded first prize in the Bellingham Review 49th Parallel Poetry Contest. Gail was the co-founder and editor of Room, a women's literary journal, and published many poets who were unknown at the time, including Kay Ryan and Sharon Olds. Gail lives in San Francisco with her husband. It's just so great to have you with us this evening, Gail. And in reading your introduction, one thing that you have not mentioned in that was a really big prize you won last year the 2019 Marsh Hawk Press Poetry Prize that was judged by Mars Piercy. And that was for your book of poems, Blood Memory. Yes, it's about to come out in May. Oh, that is so exciting. Well, we want to talk with you about your prize-winning book this evening and the poems that you're uh, working on now, and I'm sure our conversation will weave through some interesting topics as we go. I think the first thing our listeners might be interested in is just hearing a little about Blood Memory and how the poems in this collection came to you. Okay, that's a big topic because it's the topic
0: of my life. Um, I think these poems have been in me all of my life. And I've been writing about this since I was in my 20s when I first started writing poetry. But I wasn't really publishing and I don't think I was ready at that time to write these poems. Um, The early ones, I had one called an anti-Semitic demonstration, which was based on a photograph by Roman Vishniak. Uh, Roman Vishniak took photographs in Poland during the war and they were hidden, buried in various places. And after the war, thousands of these photographs were dug up and they, they, they were found. And there are books of his, uh, of his photographs. I tried to write these poems when I was too young, I think. Um, I think I needed to write these poems as an adult, so I could have some distance from it, some emotional distance. And after my father passed away, about 15 years ago, I just started writing about him. These poems just came to me. I didn't ask for them, but it was what I needed to write
1: about. Right, so those, childhood experiences were very strong then, I imagine.
0: They were. I always knew that my parents were Holocaust survivors. I don't know exactly when I learned it but I must have been, I think I was eight or nine years old when I first saw something on television and this was in the 50s and I saw a documentary about the war and that was when it really became real to me when I saw these images.
1: Yeah, it sounds like the images, the photographs and this documentary really awoke something in you. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: I think I think my writing is I think I'm a really visual writer. And so visual images have a big impact on me. I I often write to uh just looking out the window, just looking at things, or I close my eyes and I see these images in my mind, and that's
1: that's what brings the first words to mind. Well, that makes sense because I think one of the strengths in this collection of poems is these very particular details and images that as you read the poems, it's cinemagraphic in a sense. Mm -hmm. that we can really see the details Mm -hmm. as we're speaking to us in the poem or as the speaker is speaking to us in the poem. Well, let's read a poem, and then I have some more questions for you about the writing process and about the poems. I thought I would read this poem, which is early in the book, called Breath. Did you ever have a family? Yes, and a table, chairs. My brother slept in a bed beside my bed. Our voices were thick with singing as we walked the rain-stained streets. Horse stink, cabbages, the sky camouflaged under chimney smoke from textile factories. Home was everywhere in that place and we were the stories our parents told. Did you ever have a family? I did, it was winter. We skated on the drugged frost of God's breath as if the world was a frozen lake and we in our mittens and cloth coats could not see the cold clouds rising from our own mouths. Did you ever have a family? My father carried in his pocket, my hand, our paces in step, others walking toward us in black fedoras and colored kerchiefs, A crunch underfoot of dry leaves, snow, apple blossoms, earth. One was taken, then another. The rooms of the houses shrank with loss. Neighbors pulled shirts and socks, still damp, in from the line. Children were kept indoors. A woman was hauled by her hair down a public street and no one called out. They looked away. They said later they did not see in open daylight at the newsstand in front of the cafe. It's such a strong and beautiful poem, Gail. Thank you the use of your refrain did you ever have a family really propels the poem forward
0: you know i i wrote this poem in a workshop called truth and beauty and the workshop i go to this workshop every year because two of my favorite writers are the teachers and that is ellen bass and marie howe and i can't tell you what the prompt was but um the poem is in response to uh, a poem by Alan Shapiro, where he uses this phrase, did you ever have a family? And when I read Alan Shapiro's poem, that phrase just leaped out at me and I could not get it out of my mind. Mm -hmm. Also, I had the book with me at the workshop. And I remember when uh, Marie was critiquing the poem, and I had a few lines after this, Last line, and she said, Why not just stop here in front of the cafe? And I thought, Yes, that is it.
1: Right. For our listeners who can't see the poem on the page right now, after that line in front of the cafe, you actually end with a dash. Yes. And that dash really throws the reader into the abyss Mm. as if we ourselves were standing there.
0: Oh, interesting. Put that dash in because we know what happens next but I don't need to talk about that. We know, we know so many details and things about the Holocaust. And I remember Ellen Bass saying something about that as well, um, that the writer does not need to tell the reader what he or she already knows. So it's a question of honing things down, leaving things out.
1: Yes, and you did an amazing job of that throughout the entire collection of poems. Uh, This is very typical in the poems in this collection that your language is so compressed. You give us such vivid details. Uh, The horse stink and the cabbages and the chimney smoke. We can actually see these details, which makes us walk along with the speaker in the poem. They evoke so much. uh, They're so compressed. So the world becomes very vivid with these ordinary details, but you never tell us, as a reader, what we already know. So we're constantly surprised in the turns of the poem. And in this poem, that question, did you ever have a family? It's a concatenation. It's repeated throughout the poem as a single line. And each time you repeat the line, the poem Takes another turn, and the stakes get higher each time you turn. Hmm. It's just such an
0: evocative line. Did you ever have a family? Because this is like one of the things that is on my mind as I'm writing all of these poems. Like, who are they? Where are they? You know, these people disappeared, and I've never seen my grandparents. I've never seen the place where where uh, they lived. You
1: know, it's like this. They're gone. This is all gone. Well, yes, and I think this um, manuscript really addresses that kind of haunting mm. and searching. And as a reader, where it's not our family or even necessarily our own family's history, the deep world is opened up to us. Mm. So I want to read, I want to take a minute to read a couple of quotes of praise for your collection. And since you were speaking of Ellen Bass, I want to quote a couple of things she said in response to uh, blood memory. Ellen wrote, the very unspeakability of the Holocaust can make writing about it fraught. Gail Newman, the child of Holocaust survivors, transcends this difficulty in her vital new collection, Blood Memory, by telling her parents' stories, the stories of millions, in tender, particular detail. And she goes on with some particulars about the poems, which we will get into. And she also says, this is a book about collective memory, about the importance of story. And I think she's absolutely right about that. These stories come perfectly alive for the reader and for the listener. I wanted to ask you, Gail, as you were writing these individual poems, what's the process been like for you? Like, has it been fraught with emotion? Does it bring you relief? Does it take you to surprising places? You know, in
0: the writing process, I feel that these poems just come to me like a flood, a flood of words. And quite often, I don't do a lot of revision. I might, I think the poems that I really keep, you know, the ones that that work best are the ones that come quickly. And I, I can't say that I'm fraught with emotion while I'm writing because the writing takes me into a very deep place that is almost like not, not my usual living self, my life. It's another level. Um, it's hard to explain. I was thinking about when I'm writing writing, it's almost like going into a trance, you know, it's like a deep meditation. So in that deep meditation, I'm focused on these words and on this world. And in a way, apart from my own personal emotion, you know, sometimes when I read the poems, I can get very emotional. I was just reading a poem recently to my mother and uh, you know, tears, tears, came to my eyes I almost started crying but I didn't want to upset her.
1: I think that's really typical Gail to kind of go into a very deep state when we're writing the poem and only later when we're reading it and particularly when we're reading it aloud and especially to someone who is deeply involved in the subject matter of the poem, does the emotion come rushing out? It's almost like we're we're giving birth in that moment. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, yeah. I also feel like what you said earlier about needing to wait until you were older and even waiting until after your father's death for these poems to come, that you've been working this material all these years. And so when you're going into this state of writing and reflection and meditation and the poem comes to you, it's actually not out of nowhere, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of born of all of the work that you've been doing in your life of reflecting and being with and being open to both the horror and the beauty of these family stories and our shared history.
0: Yeah, I think I came to a point, it was about four years ago when I started writing more of these poems. It was after my father's death and then my mother had a stroke and and I'm getting older and I was feeling like I need to write these poems. I, I had a kind of conscious idea that I need to write these poems. And um, I remember I was taking an online workshop with Fred Marchant, and he works at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. I mean, he's a well-known poet, but he teaches some classes there. And uh, I loved his class so much. He was so helpful. I wrote to him and said, well, I would love to take another class with you. And he said, I'm not really teaching another class, but I have this conference. It's for... uh, a manuscript conference, and it's called the Coleraine Conference for Poetry Manuscripts. He said, why don't you come to that? I said, well, you know, I'd love to, but I don't have a manuscript. And then I, you know, I, I let it go for a while, and then I thought to myself, wait a minute, I started looking through my poems, and I had about, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 poems about my family, and I thought, I I I said, I don't have a manuscript, but I have these few poems. And he said, Well, you don't need a full manuscript, just come with what you have. And that was when I really thought, I do have the beginning of a manuscript. (laughs) (laughs) I went to the conference and I just started writing more and more of these poems. It was like everything made me think about that. It sounds like that was a turning point for you. It definitely was a turning point when I thought, Yes. This is the beginning of a manuscript.
1: (laughs) Wonderful. If you're just tuning in, this is the Hive Poetry Collection. I'm your host, Julie Murphy, and we're speaking with Gail Newman, award-winning San Francisco poet, on KQSD 90.7 on your dial. Let's hear some more poems, Gail. Your book is divided into three sections. Lost Language, Living with the Dead. Oh, a Blood Memory is the first. Uh, yes. Would you like to read a couple of poems from that first section, Blood Memory? Sure. What would you like to hear? Well, let's start with the first and last.
0: All right. The first poem is about my mother. The following poem is about my father. And both poems take place at the very beginning of the war in 1939. In the book, I I go back and forth between my father and my mother, telling their two stories until at some point in part two, the, the two of them come together when they meet. So this is the first poem in the book, it's called The First and Last. Early in the war, when her father was taken, before the ghetto, before starvation and the deportations, before Rumkowski pleaded, brothers and sisters, give them to me before the children hid in basements inside heaps of garbage in fields covered with leaves and branches before my own father concealed himself under a mattress before i must cut off limbs in order to save the body my mother walked alone down the jew shuttered street to ask the collaborator for news of the dead
1: that is such a strong poem. Thank you. That repetition, the use of the anaphora, beginning each line the same way at the beginning of the poem, where you repeat "before, before, before,", before evokes uh, such longing. Yeah. And the the simple statements that go with those line about you know before the ghetto, before starvation and the de- deportations, before Rumkowski you really evoke the whole horror of the Holocaust in those very simple lines telling us just enough for all of those images that are familiar to us and all of the stories that are familiar to us is completely evoked in those lines. And then you make the turn and put Rumkowski's actual quote in there. Uh, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about that.
0: Well, I know, you know, just hearing the poem and not seeing it on the page is a little problematic because there are two quotes here from Rumkowski and that's the brothers and sisters and I must cut off limbs. That is from a speech that he gave. Rumkowski was a Jew who was chosen by the Nazis to be the leader of the Lodz ghetto. When the Germans came into Poland into Lodz, which is where my mother is from, they herded all the Jews into this small area of the city and it was called the Lodz ghetto. They couldn't leave that area. My mother actually lived in that ghetto for four years. But before she was put in there, she went to Rumkowski's office because Rumkowski and her father were friends before the war and they knew each other. And Rumkowski actually told my mother that he would take care of her. And he did, because in the ghetto, my mother got a really good job, which probably saved her life. And she lived in a room, she and her mother and her brother, the three of them got their own room, which was very unusual. Of course, they had to go outside to the bathroom and there was no kitchen, but they got their own room. And they, three of them got very good jobs that kept them alive until they were deported. Of course, then once they were deported towards the end of the war, uh, her mother and brother were killed in Auschwitz, but my mother, because she was still healthy, survived. So there's, you know, stories are very quick and immediate and emotional, but there's so many stories that I can expand on for every one of these poems. Yeah. And when I read some of these poems to my mother, each time I read her a poem, she said, that's true. That really happened. Wow. Was, you know, so it's like, it's yes, mom, it's a poem, but it's about what you told me.
1: Yeah. And the, I, you're, yeah. you have such an excited look on your face as you're saying that right now. And I can see the connection with your mother as you've been able to share poems with her it seems like a very important part of your process as a poet it is it's
0: i mean this is what my mother's 99 right now i just celebrated her birthday with her last week and i just feel so blessed that i was able to write this book and that she's still alive to have this this mm-hmm. book in her hands
1: That is really, really amazing. Yes, it is. It's just really amazing. Well, since we're talking about your mother, I want to skip ahead. There's another poem about your mother uh, later in the book. I believe it's in the last section of the book called Valentine's Day. Oh, yes. Maybe you can just tell our listeners kind of where in the collection it is and what point of time you're starting in. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up about the point
0: in time because the the book really does have a progression and it tells, it's a story and it starts with my parents in Poland, starts with the war and it progresses to their immigration to America. And then the last section is about people who had died in elegies. And this poem was written after my father passed away. Valentine's Day. Now that my father is gone, I send my mother flowers. She sleeps under a blue blanket, alone on her side of the bed, fluffing both pillows just so. She balances as she walks, one hand skimming the wall. Sometimes she doesn't know where her friends are, who is still living. Einstein was right about time, moving in two directions at once. How everything that happens seems to have happened before. How when I stand before the mirror, combing my hair, I see my mother's eyes, and happiness wells up like a wave without warning. My mother looks forward to a lunch of bread and cheese, a glass of apple juice. She speaks of the weather, today being only itself. Her time is reeling in, a line cast from shore. But how she loves the sea, the horizon, the flaming sun. My mother, who knows the brutal world, who survived while others did not, says me i had it easy
1: wow that is such a surprising and inevitable end to this poem well this is like my mother if i read this poem to her she said she would say that's true (laughs) (laughs) i love hearing her voice that's true (laughs) well yeah
0: she i mean this is this is what i try to bring out in this book is that this book is about survival it's about life it's about choosing to live to go on my parents were not depressed people they went to parties my mother to this day gets up in the morning she and her friends they put on their makeup They go to the salon, get their hair done. They go out to lunch, play cards. You know, um, there's of course, there's another underside, there's a darker side,
1: but it's complex. I think you really bring that complexity forth in these poems and in this poem, Valentine's Day, between the title and the first line, Valentine's Day, now that my father is gone, The poem opens up with love and death so that spirit of life and survival in the light and in the shadow is right there in the first line of the poem, the title in the first line of the poem. As we go along again with these wonderful details, the blue blanket, fluffing the pillows, one hand skimming the wall there's a line that comes, sometimes she doesn't know where her friends are, who is still living. And it seems like that's in the here and now, and it also echoes the past. Mm -hmm. So we really feel the full history and the circle of life coming into the poem right there. And then you make a huge turn with the statement, Einstein was right about time. (laughs) And the poem really opens up And then in the next stanza, the speaker comes into the poem. Mm. And I feel like at this moment in the poem, it's completely unexpected. And you're really bringing in the generations Mm. of the speaker and her mother and the generations before and the generations to come. It's just so very potent. Mm. And then the speaker turns back to the details of her mother's lunch of bread and cheese. So we go wide open into the vast universe, into the generations present and passing and becoming, and then right back to a glass of apple juice. Mm -hmm. And then you turn again into the weather and into her time is reeling in a line cast from shore but how she loves the sea, the horizon, the flaming sun. And you cast us, listeners, back way out into the universe for such a big perspective. And then in the final stanza, you come back to your, my mother who knows the brutal world who survived while others did not says me. I had it easy. Just reading that now, it, it just brings me to tears. Well, you know, that is my mother. She
0: is not a complainer. She goes through life. She never complains. And um, I was thinking about what you said, of how it goes through time. This poem goes through time, the past and the future. And I was thinking about, um, you know, memory. like, And I feel like, who am I? In this book, I'm struggling to discover, like, who am I? Like, where do I come from? And I feel like, um, you know, the past is in me, even though it's blurred. It's indistinct. I don't know it, but I feel it in my body.
1: Be for You're listening honey, be, be to for KSQD 90.7 FM. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Gail Newman, San Francisco poet. Her parents were Holocaust survivors, and she's sharing poems and stories with us today from her forthcoming book, Blood Memory, that's going to be published in May of this year. Thank you, Julie. It's great to be with you. Wonderful. I, I feel like what you were just saying about memory is so important. And I feel like you, in, these, in this collection of poems, in the process of writing these poems, you're remembering on such a deep level. And maybe we could talk about that for a moment. I'm gonna share a quote today from The Poetry of Bearing Witness, which is an article on the On Being Project blog, which you can find the link to on our blog, hivepoetry.org, along with all the links to all the other things we've talked about during our show tonight. And this is a quote from Ellie Wiesel, who said, How does one mourn for six million people who died? How many candles does one light? How many prayers does one recite? Do we know how to remember the victims, their solitude, their helplessness? They left us without a trace, and we are their trace. It seems like your collection of poems, Blood Memory, really fulfills this promise of bringing to life the memories of your family and the memories of other individuals, maybe unknown to you. Mm that come alive in these poems? Well, I do talk specifically
0: about my family, but I try to broaden it out also. The book, the poem, the title poem, Blood Memory, which is also the last poem in the book, is about, uh, you know, members, people who died who are not among my family. And, you know, I love Lee Young Lee, and his poems he talks about being an immigrant and i think of this book as an immigrant story um and one of his poems um he says he's talking about his birthplace and he this is a quote from the poem he says a country twice erased once by fire once by forgetfulness and so i really take that with me into my poems and into my book that thought
1: that's very very evident uh in these poems the readers as a reader we really feel that um let's hear another poem why don't you pick one that you'd particularly like to read right now
0: all right i'd like to read a poem called mensch and it's about my father when my son was very small i don't know four or five we were eating chicken at the dinner table and when they finished my my father and my son put the bones of the chicken in between their teeth and i have a photograph of this so again because i'm so visual i think i was looking at this photograph when i wrote the poem it's called mench at dinner the two of them are dogs gripping chicken bones in their teeth the grandfather prowls around growling at his grandson's knees Pretending to be smaller than he is, let him be a mensch," he says at the boys' bar mitzvah. And when I ask if he remembers his own, says, "No, but I remember my bris, my father, the family tumler, always with a joke, who scrubbed the deck on a freighter to America, while my mother and I lay below with our eyes closed against the tilting walls, who landed with tuberculosis in his body." and a jacket too big for his frame, the sting of salt in his mouth. And I just want to say that there's some Yiddish words throughout the book, and I have notes at the back to tell you what they mean. But for those of you who don't know, a bris is a ceremony in which the the young, maybe eight-day-old baby is circumcised. So my father's saying here, He doesn't remember his bar mitzvah, but he remembers his bris. And, you know, that's my (laughs) We we get his sense of humor right
1: there, right? (laughs) Well, there's so many things in this poem to admire. And when you read the poem without the wonderful introduction you gave to us, and we have an image, the two of them are dogs gripping chicken bones in their teeth the reader enters a mystery. We don't quite know yet how to take that. Who, who are the two? And they're gripping chicken bones in their teeth. That could be taken a lot away. Is it play? Is it aggression? Are they starving? Right? And so, um, it's a nice turn in the next stanza when the grandfather comes in and prowls around growling at his grandson's knees. It makes it it brings in a sense of play and the play between the generations that evokes that spirit of life that we were talking about a moment ago. Mm -hmm. That's also so strong in these collection of poems and the next stanza makes another turn, let him be a mensch. And maybe Mm -hmm. you can tell our listeners a little bit about, um, some of the connotations of what being a mensch might mean because that opens the poem up again into another deep turn Mm. well
0: mensch is it's a good person but it's like
1: a stand-up guy right you know that's it (laughs) right and what a wonderful wish Mm. for a grandfather to have for his grandson. Mm-hmm. What a wonderful wish. And then the next stanza, we get your father's humor, right? And, but I remember that, I remember my Briss, and he's the tumbler, and so we get his sense of humor, but we also get his fortitude and mm-hmm. some of the inner resources he had that helped him survive and keep turning towards life. Mm -hmm. Well,
0: it's interesting because I keep getting little pieces of these stories even now. So my mother, um, sometimes I just have to ask her a lot of questions because I'll say, tell me about this, whatever, and she'll say, well, I already told you. So I have to say, yes, mom, but I want the details. You know, like I'm a writer. I want to know specifics. And then I'll ask her questions to try to draw her out. So um, that's how I get my information.
1: (laughs) Well, that's great. And listeners, since you can't see Gail's face as she's saying this, when she says, I want the details, she has a gleam in her eye. (laughs) (laughs) And you really... You really give us the details um, uh, in this book. And in this poem, I want to just come back to the last stanza. Because you say so much in such spare words, when you're reflecting back again on on my father, who landed with tuberculosis in his body and a jacket too big for his frame, the sting of salt in his mouth. Again, you're not telling us what we already know, but you're showing us with that jacket that's now too big. And the last line, the sting of salt in his mouth, it leaves this whole experience so vividly in the reader's mouth.
0: Mm. Thank you, Julie. Um, This is another poem where I got another detail about this after I wrote and published the poem because I, I read it to my mom and she was telling me, well, I said, well, how did dad get tuberculosis? There's another poem in the book called Self-Portrait, where my father is lying in the snow for three days. And she told me that there was a body, someone who was dead was lying on top of him and he contracted tuberculosis during that wow. incident. So, you know, like I said, you know, you have when writing a poem, there's so much that's left out, but you can't say everything. And so I think when I started writing this book, I had one poem and I just had too much in there. And I think I brought it to Ellen. I go to a workshop with Ellen Bass in Santa Cruz and they meet once a week in her home. And I think I brought the poem in and she said, well, you know, this could be three poems here. And so I started writing these poems, just kind of breaking it down. And even now, sometimes I'll write a poem and I'll realize there's too much in here and I just take a lot out and just focus, focus, focus. You know, Ellen does this great lesson called uh, the poem of the moment. And it's really about how just looking at one thing and focusing on that one thing.
1: Well, you have a wonderful poem of the moment uh, in the poem Sabotage, Um, and I'd like you to read that to us, but first I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to KQSD 90.7 on your dial, and I'm Julie Murphy, your host at the Hive Poetry Collective, and today we're speaking with Gail Newman, San Francisco poet. Thank you, Julie, this is Sabotage,
0: and it takes place in the Lodz Ghetto Documents Office in Poland. In the Lodz Ghetto. Her her left hand on the table holds steady an index card, while with the right she rubs off the damning curled leg of a five, the ample breast of a zero, adding a loop to make a number older erasing another to diminish the truth. Though the card is unlined, the script soldiers straight across the page. With feet rooted on the floor, hands soiled with lead, she bends over the table, working through the thin hours. Satisfied, she settles the card, back in the box, and pulls free another. While outside, clouds race over the city, the sky bending into tomorrow's light. The evidence is in her hands. A Jewish girl, my mother, in the year of her awakening.
1: So beautiful. So beautiful. This poem is doing so many subtle and effective and powerful things in it. It, just to begin with, in that first stanza, the syntax is really striking. Her left hand on the table holds steady an index card, while with the right she rubs off the damning curled leg of a five. So we hear a syntax that it indicates in itself that something is off kilter, mm. and it, it hints to another language. It's not the typical syntax of the English language. It's not grammatically incorrect, but it's not the way that we ordinarily speak. And so the speaker is cueing as she's showing us her left hand. She's show, She's already cueing us that something is off. And then in that first stanza, you also introduce the broken body, the damning curled leg of a five, the ample breast of a zero. So we have this very uh, beginning of this very strong foreboding in this poem. And then the verbs in the next stanza, soldier straight across the page, feet rooted on the floor, hands soiled with lead, she bends over the table working through the thin hours. And those thin hours and the use of those particular verbs really amplify the foreboding that we feel in this poem. And then the next next stanza makes another turn, right? You've got the That she settles the card back in the box and pulls free another. So again, that surprising syntax, but just that language, she's pulling it free. Something new is happening in the poem Mm. uh, with that language. And the clouds race, and the sky is bending into tomorrow's light. We feel a sense of hope coming into the poem with that language. And then your final stanza has another turn. The evidence is in her hands. So we really see the courage of this figure in the poem. And then we don't know until the last two lines. A Jewish girl, my mother, in the year of her awakening, just totally opens the poem up. And it's such an important portrait
0: Hmm.
1: I feel like this poem really begins to show the courage of resistance that's in many of the poems in this collection that we haven't spoken much about yet Um, but this poem really gives evidence to that
0: I just feel like I worked really hard on this mostly with the order the sequence I think I had the end when I first started But this, again, this poem was written in the Truth and Beauty workshop, specifically towards the prompt by Ellen Bass, which is write a poem in the moment. And what I really struggled with was slowing down, like getting each little detail following bit by bit. And this poem is really important to me, and I think just as a poem in general, because these acts of resistance, and sabotage that seemed like small things were just life-threatening. She could have been killed in a minute if anybody knew what she was doing. And people did this quite a lot during the war. You know, when they say the Jews didn't resist, there was a lot of um, resistance. And my mother told me this story and someone said, oh my God, you have to do some research on this and find out more about it because this is something I haven't heard before. And I don't know if anybody else has survived that was actually in her office doing this, but this was the job that I referred to earlier in the interview that my mother had this easy job, which was going out and documenting deaths. She would go into the street and into people's homes to see who was alive, who was still dead. And she worked in this document office and did this work for the Nazis.
1: Wow. And we can just see the risk that was taken and how these acts of resistance, which as you said, might seem so small, also gave her life. Because one of the things that is inherent in this conversation that we haven't really talked directly about is also, how much trauma people went through. And your your mother, in, in taking an action like this, was actually organizing her whole living being back towards life. And being able to take an action in the midst of trauma is a really strong indicator of how, whether one remains traumatized or is able to resolve the trauma and go on with their life. Mm -hmm. And so these acts of resistance, no matter how small they were, no matter how risky they were, are incredibly Mm life-giving.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I don't know that the trauma is ever resolved, but like I said earlier, there are layers in one's life. The trauma is one layer the acts of living are another layer because I have another poem in the book about my father waking up at night with these horrible nightmares.
1: That's right. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the trauma revisiting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, We're talking with Gail Newman, San Francisco poet about her new prize winning collection of poems, Blood Memory here on the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Julie Murphy, your host, and we're on, K-Squid, 90.7 on your dial. Well, after I finished the book, I thought,
0: now what am I going to write about? And of course, I feel like that every time I write a poem, I think, oh my God, am I ever going to write another poem? But there was a kind of sadness, kind of nostalgic feeling about leaving these poems and finishing the book. But then I felt the sense of opening up and the sense of freedom that, now I can write about all these other things like everything else in life, right? So, uh, you know, some months have passed and I'm finding that, uh, you know, these poems are still coming back to me. I'm not finished with them, but I am writing about a lot of other things, but there's still a thread that runs through I'm kind of obsessed with. And that's just this whole idea or question about time and memory like what is that you know i think i'm never going to be finished with that and lucky
1: for us Uh, as (laughs) your readers that you won't be finished about them because you have the most interesting things to say about time and memory and faith and life so we'd love to hear one of your poems that you're currently working on i would love to read you something um
0: This is called First Word. And when I talk about memory and time, this is about my son when he was a baby. And during that time, I thought I never wrote about him because I never had any time. And I was just completely you know, in love with him and obsessed with him. So I didn't write. And I always thought, oh, I wish I'd written about that. But now I'm writing about it. So this is called First Word. Oh, and I want to say that this was written in response to a prompt by Two Sylvia's Press. I signed up for their month of prompts. And the prompt was a poem called Without a Drop of Hyperbole in It, a poem by Tracy Brimhall that was in The New Yorker. And along with responding to these prompts, I got to have one of my poems um, critiqued by Maggie Smith. Wow. Really exciting. So I wrote this poem, and she gave me some critique, and I made a few changes. It's called First Word. I love you like a hole in my sock. I love the lump of you, the rolls of fat behind your knees. I love the muck on your bib, your toys strewn across the floor like dead flies. I love your cry that wakes me in the night, and the way you lie on my belly loving it as a lizard loves a rock I love the spittle on your lips the drool on my collar your wet kiss I adore the sunshine of your elbows and the wrinkles in your breath hot on my cheeks for you I forego sleep little flea when I lift you up standing on the deck on a dark clear night to show you the moon rising behind the trees and the stars lit up like candelabra. You squirm and push against my chest with the petals of your fingers, reaching up past me, your eyes all wide and round, like the world we are on, spinning, carousel, wheel of fortune, universe. Light, you say, reaching for
1: it. Light. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Gail. This is just such a tremendous poem, and it has in it all the things that you do so incredibly well. Your language is surprising, and your details are so particular. This would be an easy poem to get sentimental about, first word. And yet, you use the I love you like the hole in my sock, the lump of you rolls of fat, muck on a bib, toys like dead flies. All of this language is not at all sentimental. So the reader is drawn right in with you, and it's so physical. And I love it like a lizard loves a rock. We really feel the warmth and the connection of this infant. And then the speaker goes on to love all the not so pleasant things, the spittle and the drool and the wet kisses and the wrinkles in the breath, hot on the neck. It's so embodied. We really feel the presence of this infant as the speaker is describing these details. And then that term of endearment, little flea. Uh, It's just so... Heartful, and because the rest of the poem has not been sentimental, but particular and incredibly vivid, we feel the tenderness towards this little flea. And then the speaker doesn't turn away from what's difficult. I'm willing to forego sleep. And that's a very real part of having an infant, is not sleeping. And then the the poem opens up to the moon and the candelabra of the stars. And then the eyes are wide and round like the world we're spinning on, a carousel, a wheel of fortune, the universe. So you do this turn like you do in so many poems where you go from these minute particulars to the largeness of the universe. And then you come back to this baby's voice, light as he's reaching for it, light. Mm -hmm. And it's just so hopeful and so promising. And so beautiful.
0: Thank you, Julie. Um, Someone said that those last lines sounded biblical. And I wasn't thinking about that when I wrote the poem, but when I look back at it, I think I was thinking about that, like when God's made the world and said, let there be light. Yes. So I feel like these questions of faith keep coming into my poems, you know, almost unconsciously.
1: Right. And I think there's something about that faith and the obsession that you have. And all good writers have to have obsessions because there's that drive to go deeper and deeper into the material And so, as you go into time and memory and this tender moment, because this also is a poem of the moment, of the speaker Mm -hmm. of the poem out in the night with this infant in her arms, right? Looking at the moon and the stars and feeling the, the breath on her neck. The poem is so vivid, we enter into it. And that light, is so astonishing at the end. So thank you so much, Gail, for delivering all these beautiful poems to us and for being willing to look unflinchingly uh, at the brutality and the beauty in the world and to continue to have faith and search for faith consciously and unconsciously, uh, with your whole heart, your whole being. We're just so lucky to have you in the world and to have you here with us tonight on the Hive Poetry Collection. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Julie. I feel lucky to be here. And I just want to put
0: in one uh, plug for the book. And that is, it's available from small press distributors now but it will be on Amazon and other places after the 1st of May.
1: I'm so glad you said that, Gail, because we will put up notices when your book is generally available on the Facebook page at Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD, on our blog, hivepoetry.org, and on Twitter at Hive Poetry. And please subscribe to our podcast And you can get it at Spotify or iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Good night and thanks for joining the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm your host, Julie Murphy, and we're here at KQSD 90.7 FM.